Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. Today we're going to be talking about basic theories and international relations. Part 1 of this, of the series was more debatey, that discussion of IR. In this episode, we're going to be discussing some basic theories that benefit people who want to master international relations theme or just want to know about the topic in general. Again, this information is based on Nina's personal knowledge and our collective years as debaters and also her years in studying political science. It's probably not going to cover absolutely everything there is to know, but for this particular episode, we're going to structure it in a different way because this is Nina's baby, so I will just perform my role as an interviewer a little bit since I had the religion episode. (laughs) This can be Nina's episode. Yeah, so the basic theories of international relations are, are quite a lot. There are... Like, when I was introduced to it, I was introduced to five at the onset, which I think is a little bit overwhelming. So I'm going to break it down first into discussing the primary three, in my opinion. And these basic theories and approaches are important because they're a good place to start, basically. I think in all introductory classes you'll ever face in IR, these are probably the first three the the prof will make you read. And of course... Each theory has its own class and even has its own course. I'm just giving you a sort of shortcut to the lesson. So, of course, there's going to be things that are missing. The first theory, which is personally my favorite and probably the one I use a lot in debate, is realism. And you've probably heard about this one a lot. It's basically the idea that like, everyone wants power. It's the idea that states operate because they want to have more power over the other. It relies on an ancient tradition of thought which believes that people are constantly in a state of anarchy and constantly basically trying to get ahead of one another. So these are like thoughts based on writers such as Eusidides and Machiavelli and Hobbes. So I understand that realism necessarily implies that there's always a conflict between state actors. But what exactly do you mean by power? So politics is basically the entire field is a study of power. And you can break up power in a lot of ways. So if you look at economic power that ties in with econ, or if you look at power in terms of grabbing more land, that's a bit more war theory-esque. If you look at power in terms of influence, that's diplomacy. But I would say for beginners, you can look at power in three lenses, like soft power, hard power, and sharp power. Sharp power is relatively new, but I think it's kind of cool. So soft power is basically diplomatic power, how much of your culture do other people follow. So I would say US has a lot of strong soft power right now. A lot of UK countries have soft power. It's basically how friendly you can be with other countries and how likable you are. Hard power is warfare, so how much fear can you instill on others based on your military or your troops or your weapons, etc. So it's a more war theory angle of things while soft power is more diplomacy. Sharp power is new because with the rise of fake news and the rise of propaganda, instead of making states like you or fear you, sharp power makes it such that your country looks great because you're making other countries look bad. So sharp power can mean, for example, what Russia is doing when they have propaganda against the West. They're not saying that Russia is great. All they're saying is that the West is horrible. And because they do that effectively, by extension, Russia's power in the international community gets stronger because they push other people down. So isn't sharp power, in essence, the ability of a state to influence another state's viewpoint with regard to another actor? Yep, So basically it. Can't you conceptualize that as one form or one manifestation of soft power? Yeah, it is. But I think soft power is more positive. Like, the benefits are positive. You try to make someone like you. But sharp power is more negative in nature. You want someone's performance in the international community to become lower or less than yours. Again, the line's very thin. It's a relatively new theory. It hasn't really been cemented as much. But I think it's... Like growing, and I, I personally like the differentiation between this and soft power. But All that's right. just me. So you mentioned Thucydides, Machiavelli, and Hobbes. 
What yeah. exactly did they say? Yeah, so for realism, they like introduced a lot of the basic concepts that you use now. For Thucydides, he conceived of human nature as strictly determined by one's physical and social environments alongside basic desires. So basically, everyone's an animal. They're fueled by like their own interests. They're fueled by their hunger, their needs, their sex drive, etc. Machiavelli proposed that immoral behavior, such as the use of deceit and the murder of innocence, was normal and effective in politics. If you read The Prince, it's basically a lot of really bad things as to how you win in warfare. But realism recognizes that that's effective and that's true and that's how... The international community works. At least, that's their angle of things. And Hobbes proposed that humans are egocentric in nature, and everything's about them. And this translates to how states, therefore, operate. So, I guess, to sum it up, the, the four like propositions in realism are as follows. I think these are the tenets that make you identify whether a lens is realist or not. The first is, if the lens states that States are the most important actors, so they are more important than international bodies or leaders or organizations. For realists, the states are the end-all be-all, meaning no one else can dictate their actions, even if you have international bodies, even if you have the UN, they don't have any teeth. So, but doesn't... Okay, so this stems from the notion of sovereign equality, where no sovereign state can impose their will on others, Mm -hmm. because they're equal, right? But... How does this jive with the notion that a lot of states are able to voluntarily give up some of their own sovereignty to be part of those international organizations? So realism believes that even if they give up some sort of sovereignty, it's all strategic in nature. So they're doing it not because they believe in the cause, but because there's a personal benefit to them. So in the end, it's all strategy, it's all long-term thinking. So even if they sacrifice a little bit of their beliefs, they don't really believe that these international actors have a hold on them anyway. Which is why the US hasn't really ratified any of the treaties they've joined or what do you call that? Sign? They like, haven't not... ratified. Yeah. They're, they're not... They're not parties. Yeah, they're not parties to a lot of Yeah, so even if they're just doing it for face value, realistically or in realism's lens, it's all just a fad or it's all just a show. So that's the first one, that states are the most important actors. Second is that the international system is anarchic. So what is anarchy? It's basically the state of chaos. There's, like, it's free-for-all. Everyone can grab power when they can. So everyone has an equal shot. Everyone's on equal terms. At least because they're all states and they all have sovereignty and no one is higher above them. So this leads usually to the system of polarity. So... Mearsheimer was the proponent of this theory that there's anarchy in the international community and that's usually just solved by the creation of hegemons. And usually hegemons show up in different systems. So one system is a unipolar hegemon, which is just one power taking control. So that would be when US had dominance in the international community. They were a unipolar hegemon. You can have bipolar hegemons, which is probably what we see now with Russia and... Ah, no, not Russia. When we maybe had, Cold War. Yeah, maybe Cold War, just like two main the, powers. The, uh, the allies in the USSR. Yeah. 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 So that's two powers. And now I, I'd say we are more multipolar because each country has an advantage in a particular arena. So if you remember in the last episode, I said that China has an advantage when it comes to econ. US has an advantage when it comes to warfare. When it comes to propaganda, it's Russia. When it comes to... I, I don't know, trade, it's probably the UK. So you'd say that there's probably multipolar hegemons and hegemons that exist in their own places. So I suppose this is taking into account comparative advantages between states. Yep. Yeah. I I, I thought of another example for multipolar. Maybe medieval Europe, mm. where you have a lot of little yeah. powers there. Yeah, so a lot of IR is really history. Realism builds a lot on history. So it was created because of the wars. That's why it's so sad. That's why it's sad. And that's why a lot of people think it's a a little bit outdated. So that's the second aspect of realism, that international systems are anarchic. The third one would be that all states within the system are unitary, rational actors. This means that states tend to pursue self-interest and groups like the ASEAN, for example, or NATO, or whatever group of alliances exist, they strive to attain as many resources as possible or achieve relative gain. So relative gain is different from absolute gain. 
Because relative gain means your gains in comparison to others. So, how much more do you have compared to your neighbor or other countries? Absolute gain just means how much you gained compared to how much you had before. So, it's just like an introspective thing. Relative power means you looking at others and making sure they have less than you. Which again, is very sad. But this is how warfare worked and this is how IR operated for a really, really long time. So, that's, that's like the third one. Fourth one is that the primary concern of all states is survival. Survival in the form of relevance, survival in the form of power. And states build up their militaries, therefore, to survive, which may lead to a security dilemma. So, the security dilemma is a very classic thing. It's like, if I build missiles, I'm not going to use them. I'm doing them because I think I'm defending myself. But then Kyle sees me building missiles, so he'll build more missiles. And I see Kyle building more missiles, so it's just like constantly... It's Cold War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Cold War. It's basically a cycle. Everyone wants weapons. Everyone is doing their best to outwit the other. But everyone's just always tense. There's like so much tension in the air. So that's offensive realism versus defensive realism. For example, I may be building weapons because I want to attack you. And you're building weapons because you're anticipating attack. I am operating in a lens of offensive realism. You're operating in a lens of defensive realism. Of course, these things constantly overlap. But, you know, that's just a good way to divide things. Okay. But I would say, so far, from my, from my understanding of realism, it's very econ. It's very economics. Like, it's about the individual, the individual's rationality, the individual self-interest, etc. But isn't it possible that we're starting from the wrong viewpoint here? Like, what you said... Um, Thucydides said that human nature is basically the environment plus basic desires. But what if you flip it on its head where you create a system in which the environment does not encourage um, the, the use of deceit, the use of immoral behavior that Machiavelli was talking about? Because from my point of view, essentially, environment plus desire... Um, creates human nature and it's enforced by its effectivity in the political sphere and that reinforcement sort of is like reinforces the egocentrism and the selfishness that Hobbes was talking about so what if you flip it on its head and say what if the um, environment that we all started with does not encourage these things what if you put some measures in place that control these behaviors. Well, that would lead to liberalism, which is the second thing I'll discuss later, because liberalism operates in a world where peace is possible. But realism, one of the core assumptions is the world is chaos. No matter how much you try, there's going to be information asymmetry, there's always going to be one that wants power, you can't trust anyone. So it's a very negative view of things. I think you cannot flip it on its head, because if you flip it on its head, it's no longer possible to have this lens so what are what you're saying is that peace is a lie peace is a lie <laughs> we're just in a constant state of war yeah we are in a constant state of war every lull that exists according to realists it's just like a preparation stage for a war yeah. to take place that sounds like uh that sounds like something from the wonder woman movie mm. because the villain in that movie <laughs> uh, was dancing with wonder woman and he said that peace is just an armistice in an endless war. Yeah, and Wonder Woman is like, Eucydides. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Eucydides is also now rather popular because of Wonder Woman. Or at least I, I kind of acknowledge that, like, hmm, I got that reference. I understood that because I'm a pulse high major. All right, All right, so since we're talking about realism, how does that relate to um, real politics? So, or real politics. Yeah, real politic or real politic. I, I pronounce it real, but uh, you know, it's different for everyone. So it's by Ludwig von Rochelle. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that name. We, we just say Rochelle, but I think we might be butchering it. It's probably Ludwig also. Yeah, or Ludwig, yeah. But basically, he said that like realism is an ideology, but real politic is politics or diplomacy based primarily on considerations of given circumstances factors rather than explicit ideological notions or moral and ethical premises so real politic is basically pragmatism so realism and real politic overlap a lot but the main difference is it's not always based on pragmatics how realism operates because if even if everything's fine 
the basic assumption is people will want more, right? But realpolitik is basically people are doing it for a personal gain because they want something that they urgently need and did not have before. So it's pragmatic in nature. That's a very thin line again, but I guess the 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 conclusion to this is realpolitik is like an application of the ideology. An ideology encompasses is just a, a bigger scope of things. So, kumbaga, if we're talking about in, in a debate, you're gonna start using buzzwords like realpolitik when you start bringing up matter. Mm. Yeah, 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 Ken. If you want to do that, I don't think the judges or the other debaters will understand you. But if you want to sound smart, why not? <laughs> realpolitik, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Yes. So, I think besides looking at the four propositions of realism, as I mentioned earlier, we can also look at the different types of realism. And this word gets a little bit complicated. Um, a lot of big words get thrown out. It took me a long while to actually get to differentiate all the different types of realism. But I hope that this like summary I'm giving will do a good job at it. So, you have the classical realism. That's the first one. It's basically drive for power and the will to dominate that's held as the fundamental aspects of human nature. So basically, this is what I was saying earlier. People just want to dominate each other. They want to be on top. They want to have power. They're doing this because somehow everyone wants to be the head honcho. Sounds like toxic masculinity to me. Well, yes. Yes, it's toxic masculinity because states are merely like reflections of the people who, who rule them. And at the time where realism was made, it's all men. Right? So I, I would say it does have a lot to do with um, like masculinity and machismo culture. That's also actually another theory that I'm not gonna delve into. There's IR feminism, which says that men cause a lot of problems because they just can't help and can't cooperate at all. Mm, but that's okay. another thing. Because <laughs> men are trash, but that's another thing. Okay. So that's the first one. The second type is liberal realism, which may sound contradictory in nature, but this is where common norms and interests allow for more order and stability than that which may be expected in a strict realist view. Okay, so there it seems that there's like a spectrum here. Yeah. Like there's strict realism and there's like a middle ground where like it's still an anarchy but we have things that we agree on. Like let's not... Mm, what are some things that we can agree on even in anarchic world? I'm not sure. I, I'm not personally a fan of the liberal realism. I think that's just realism's way of like modernizing itself. But I I would say probably based on what I read earlier, like a common norm in interest means that everyone wants to, for example, travel space. So even if, for example, that is a territory people want to dominate, in the meantime, there's a recognition in the norm that everyone just wants to know what's out there. Like, there's a common curiosity for space travel. Which, again, is probably, like, the premise of Star Trek. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, uh, from what we're talking about, I feel like in this world where peace can no, can can never happen, Star Trek would never happen in this kind of world. Well, Star Trek is communist, so I don't think it'll happen. Anyway, we're going on a tangent. <laughs> but also, I feel like liberal realism, I, I think one of the ways that you can... Um, one of the examples here might be customary international law. Mm, For example, um, we were talking earlier about how states are the most important actors and we shouldn't interfere because of um, sovereign equality. That in itself seems to be a custom or like a norm that all states agree with and that still regulates their actions or their interactions with each other, even if it isn't an argument. Yeah, so I, I guess this is where you can still kind of acknowledge that international bodies have a role, but in the end, the final say is still the states. So I think that's what realism tries to do. So even if we lend some power or give up some of our sovereignty to be part of the UN, I still get the final say, which is why there's vetoes, there's why there, that's why there's still wars taking place, because like even if we're liberal, it's not enough to trump the natural nature of people to want power and more of it. The third one is neo-realism, which sounds complicated, but it's basically also structural realism, which sounds equally complicated, but it just means that instead of focusing on the dominantly anarchic structure, they say that it's not the nature that's anarchic, it's actually the international system that's anarchic and flawed. 
So this is where they critique international bodies a lot. They say that, fine, even if people are not savages and they're not animals, the system makes it so easy for people to abuse it. There's no teeth in the UN. There's no teeth in a lot of treaties, for example. So it states that the structure is flawed such that it allows for anarchy to exist. Does that make sense? Alright, so does that mean that anarchy is not inherent in the practice of states interacting with each other? It's just the system in which they interact encourages um, anarchic behavior. I wouldn't say that they dismiss altogether that humans have a tendency to be anarchic, but I'd say that they don't focus on it. So they're not saying that it plays no role. They're merely saying, regardless if it does play a role or not, we want to emphasize that probably 80% of the problems are because of international systems. Yeah, so that's like just shifting the lens. I wouldn't say they're trying to disprove It's like the equivalent of being, I guess, agnostic in religion. You're not trying to disprove anything. You just rather not believe it or believe in other things as well. Mm. Get it? Yeah, the fourth one is neoclassical realism. (laughs) I think we're just getting more and more complex as you go. But basically, neoclassical realism was developed because realism did not discuss much about political incentives outside of power. So I think this tried to expand more that it's not just about power, it's also about distribution of that power. It's also about domestic perception of the system and domestic incentives, meaning besides power, now politicians also care about how will it affect them in the polls? How will other people perceive it? How will my diplomatic actions look like to other countries? And it also looks at foreign policy decisions. So I think that neoclassical realism is... A new way of looking at realism, but takes into consideration new elements that did not exist before. Like democracy. Like democracy. Yeah, because like we're talking about polls, right? Mm. So we're talking about how there might be some sort of accountability that you can um that like you can hold leaders into account whenever they start needless wars, for example. Yep. So but for me, doesn't that mean that like there is a possibility for peace if everyone starts trying to hold their leaders into account when they, like, be Donald Trump's and whatnot. Yeah, but again, even if there's peace in the domestic sphere, you underestimate how little people care about international relations. So even yeah. if I hold Trump accountable, I don't care how he engages with other nations. Because as long as he is feeding me and he is making me happy on the ground and I never have to face other countries, I'll be fine. All so right. that's still like a, a basic flaw in people <laughs> that realism takes advantage of. So how would you use this in a debate context, for example? Well, there's a lot of ways to use realism. I'd say there are three main ways that I use it effectively. The first would be, this is how I prove that cooperation is unlikely. Like when another team proposes, for example, collaboration and like... Hater. Like seeing eye to eye and negotiation. I'll just cite a lot of historical instances where people betray one another. Or even if they do that, it's for selfish reasons and it's not gonna last long. Because in the end, it's all about anarchy and power. That's one. Second, I would also use realism to burden push the other team to show like relative gains. So for example, I'm going to force the other team to showcase how come or are you sure they're doing this out of benevolence and not for any personal reason that may be disadvantageous to other nations in the future. So that's how I utilize realism as well. I think lastly, it's basically you use realism to prove that the international community doesn't have teeth. It doesn't have the ability to control states. It doesn't have the ability to keep people in line when worse comes to shove. That's it. Obviously, there's still criticisms of realism. I'd say it's kind of outdated because democratic peace now exists. And also, hegemonic stability theory proves that even if there's a state of anarchy, you can maintain, like, a power balance if someone is like controlling a lot of it. Which again is sad. What is a hegemon anyway? A hegemon is basically someone who's in power. I'd say that's the simplest way to put it. There are a lot of technical terms that I can throw at you about what hegemons are. But basically, they are... like Hegemons are based on the idea that there is a big pillar or a big, uh, big, big structure that keeps everything together. 
basically holds everything and carries everything else. Like like a I don't know. Pillar. Like a pillar. <laughs> like I said. I'm running out of words to describe what a hegemon is. So maybe um the hegemon is the one that imposes like a set of guidelines that other states should be able to work under. Yeah. So this was a theory by Robert Gilpin and it shows that someone having power usually limits the anarchy that fuels realism. Because, for example, when US was the super mega power, no one would bother trying to fight him. No one would bother trying to start a war. Therefore, there was relative peace. Not because people were peaceful, but because there was just someone who was so powerful, people didn't have the advantage over them, so they didn't bother trying. Because selfishly, they knew that they would lose more and wouldn't have gained. So, okay, in conclusion, I feel like realism does not preclude the possibility of peace. It's just that we have to reimagine what peace actually is. So even if there is peace, like ostensibly there is peace, in reality it's just people either too scared to make a move or they're preparing to make a move. So peace, even if it does ostensibly exist, it will always be fragile. Yep. Um, that's the very basic and very fundamental view of realism. Of course, it has evolved. Thus, all the like four types of realism that I, I demonstrated earlier. But like fundamentally, yes. The next one after realism is liberalism, which again, not all, not my favorite, but I do use a lot in debates because it is a useful frame. And given that, like, admittedly, the Philippine debate community and the debate community in general is very liberal. Like in their thinking, it, this comes in handy. <laughs> I like liberalism. Of course you do. <laughs> you're you're someone who's studying law, so you believe that there is a way to maintain peace and order in a world of anarchy. Also, I I just genuinely believe that people cooperation can exist. Aww. You know, people are good. Wow, sweet summer child. <laughs> Very optimistic. <laughs> so yeah, liberalism is basically the opposite, or not complete opposite, but it's a counterpart to realism. So in the spectrum, it's the opposite end. Doesn't mean it's opposite completely, but it just has a lot of things that realism doesn't, and vice versa. In liberalism, there's a more optimistic view of the international stage, so, liberalism was pioneered after the Enlightenment by philosophers like Voltaire, Locke, Smith, and Immanuel Kant. And I know you're not a fan of Immanuel Kant, but he provided liberalism, so there's that, right? <laughs> I just don't like how Kant uses words, okay? It's, it's, it's too... Okay, never mind. <laughs> but you'll have your own episode on Philo one day. <laughs> yeah, so basically, for example, Locke believes that people are born as blank slates without any pre-ordained uh, ideas or notions. Yeah, so like a tab, ta, ta, what? Tabula rasa. Tabula rasa. I used to use that word a lot, but like after I took my braces out, I can't say words like that anymore. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. It's just difficult for me to relearn certain words that sound like tongue twisters. But anyway, so Locke had a more optimistic view of people. He didn't say they were golden sunshine people, but he said that they're not anarchic and they're not like animals or savages at the onset. So that's a good thing. And liberalism therefore follows three basic principles. The first would be it rejects power politics due to international relations. It believes that we don't always have to play to put the other in disadvantage. We can just all kumbaya and hold each other's hands. I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm dissing it, but that's really You are what dissing it. it. <laughs> it's really what it is at the onset, right? Second, that there are mutual benefits to international co- uh, cooperation. So this is what I call liberal interdependence, which is a big word I like using in debates a lot. It basically means that the world is so closely knit together now that people can't afford to be isolationist because one act affects the other. And therefore, if you do a good thing or you allow another state to do a good thing, it will benefit you in the long run. So if you, for example, give another country aid, it's a good act. But it's also a strategic act because given how tight everyone is, it will affect your economics, perhaps. It will give them mobility so that they can be tourists for your country, etc. Tourism. <laughs> tourism. You claim that you're not dissing it, but you use examples like tourism. But tourism? Are you dissing tourism? I'm not that dissing is tourism. one of the main ways we earn as the Philippines. What I'm how saying you? is that there must have been a better example to... I, I just couldn't think of one. I'm sorry. What's another example? Uh, trade? Yeah, trade. Yeah, but is like it... Like, if you give a country development tour- aid and they 
um, they develop their own industries, for example, and you become trading partners. Everybody yeah, wins. Uh, yeah, tourism is basically people trade. <laughs> people trade. That's human trafficking, mean. Uh, like consensual human trade. No, that's well, still trafficking somehow. I think you can that, consent to that's me. A- I don't know. That's being an illegal immigrant. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Okay, okay. Sorry. Sorry, got distracted there. The, the third basic principle is that international organizations and non-government actors, like, they shape state preferences and policy choices more than the accumulation of power. So they believe that the UN, the ASEAN, these big international bodies actually have more power than realists say. And this is probably the part I believe in the most. Because I, I'm a big fan of diplomacy and I do believe that international actors end up effectively coercing and effectively steering the mindsets of a lot of countries because they get them exposed to other worldviews. They have, well, they don't have punishments per se if you break part of a treaty, but there are repercussions in the form of like other, other nations sanctioning you. Other nations looking down on you, <laughs> preventing trade, etc. Right? Yeah, I would also argue that if you look at organizations like the UN, they provide the the structure that is lacking in an anarchic, realist world. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like for example, um, you said that um, the only way, one of the only ways that um, the international system can be stable is with hegemons, but like so it's. Like it's almost impossible for you to have a demo- democratic international system, mm. but if you have organizations like the UN or the U- the UN General Assembly, where everyone gets the same like vote and the same weight of that vote, it creates some sort of democracy or it democratizes the international system. And in fact, if you like, like let's take the uh, example that you gave earlier about. What was that? The UN Security Council. Mm-hmm. You said, "Oh, look, they can veto things anyway." But if you remember, the only the permanent five members of the UN Security Council can exercise the veto power. But the permanent five was determined after the Second World War, and after the Second World War, the most powerful country in the world then was the United States. So doesn't that show that the United States, even as the hegemon who had a lot of the power, was still willing to? Distribute some of its power to other states, like the other members of the P5. Yeah, I guess that's an optimistic way to look at it. The pessimistic way or the realist way to look at it is because the U.S. couldn't afford not to look bad after what they did. Like they were trying to recover their image after the war. They did a lot of atrocities, so they're like, you know, I'm a good person. <laughs> like, the All the bombings were the mistakes. You know, I'm willing to give you some. Some some veto like I I'm sorry I took your lands here have a veto power I'm sorry I nuked you yeah here have a veto power oh no they don't, no, have, they don't veto. have a veto power oh yeah that's even worse <laughs> I'm, See? I'm sorry we nuked you here let us create this organization that says world peace yeah yeah basically so that's a realist way to look at it but liberalism does agree that like a lot of the developments now are because of benevolence of people and because of the fact that globalization is a thing. Um, the fact that trade is now inevitable and countries now have to face each other as like mutual entities and not as enemies. So those are the three basic principles. I'd say there's also three factors for liberalism. The first would be institutional institutions in the international community. So this is where you get international laws and customs. And this is the institutional peace theory. It states that liberalism exists and peace exists because of the institutions that are there, basically. So because of international law, you yeah. create. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't, don't be so smug. There's just one theory out of all. <laughs> yeah, but then of course you can criticize that by asking the question, is international law really law if it doesn't have teeth? And then I would answer you by saying that well, there are other mechanisms aside from coercive force that would encourage people states to follow mm. international law like I, I read a paper last semester about um, reputation mm. so they wouldn't dare violate international law because it hurts their reputation amongst the community of nations and that would mean that 
other countries are less are going to be less willing to negotiate with them, create treaties that would benefit them as well. Mm. So, so that's that's still realist though. But but mm. I do agree. It it's a realist. It's realism that was co-opted to lead to a liberal like outcome, which is what basically all theories overlap with each other. It's unavoidable. So right. so that's how like institutional peace theory works. Customs and laws in the international arena end up creating peace. The second would be like international trade or commercial peace theory. It states that peace is maintained because people need each other now. Basically, I will yeah. give you this, you give me this. I want some of your spices. I want your land. <laughs> I want your spices. <laughs> well, We're the 1600s. Yeah, I want your sugar. I want your silk. Well, let's make a road, basically. So perhaps it's. it's I need your rare earth. Yeah. Like, I need your bananas and mangoes. <laughs> Why did you bring it back? <laughs> no, I'm serious though. That's like one of the main things we exported. People love our bananas and our mangoes. We have the superior mangoes. We do have the superior mangoes. Yeah. So like, have you tasted mangoes from Western countries? Yeah. When I went to the states, I was like, "What is this? This is blasphemous. This, this is bland. <laughs> this is some bland. They bland. didn't. They didn't season their mangoes. <laughs> Yeah, so that's commercial peace theory. And the third is democratic peace theory, which basically looks at the spread of democracy and how liberal norms and cultures are now being shared. Again, there is criticism here because democracy was basically imposed by the West. But since everyone accepted it, is it still a bad thing if people like it, right? That's like one of the main questions about democracy. We can make an episode out. (laughs) Maybe, maybe another one. Yeah, because I do agree with you, like... For example, the Philippines accepted, ended up accepting, like, democracy. Mm. Like, you could argue that. You could argue the opposite way, but I like to think that... We accepted We accepted it. democracy, mm. right? But because we accepted it, without, we didn't, um, we didn't repu- replicate, though, the conditions that America had to go through in order to develop their own brand of democracy. Yeah. So... You just transplant democratic ideals in a country that wasn't that, ready. That for wasn't it. ready for it. Yeah. Or like some of their facets disagree with, um, like the their cultural experiences. Yeah. Again, though, probably another episode. I'm also very interested in that and like the democratic growth of the Philippines. I think that's a that's a that's a very complicated issue that I'd rather like. Leave yeah, out. I like thinking that um, our constitution is a product of. Neocolonialism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's also an IR theory that I'm not discussing in this episode because, again, too complicated, too but little anyway, time. I like I like this the spread of liberal norms and culture sharing because this is the way that we get to Star Trek. Yeah, like, that, that <laughs> yeah. is my my number one concern is how do we get to a society that is ready for space travel where we can treat everyone with respect, where we do not have money. Yeah, where people just spend their time improving themselves. That is the goal. We've been watching too many like Star Trek episodes. Like yesterday, I think we watched four movies or yeah. four or five. Yeah, yeah. I think we watched um, Wrath of Khan. We watched Star Trek Into Darkness, mm. which bastardized Wrath, Wrath of, of Khan. Khan. <laughs> we watched Star Trek um, Beyond, Beyond, mm. which is the good Star Trek. Yeah, and we also I watched really this, this campy Star Trek generations. So, like the only good part of that is like you, you get William Shatner in it again. They're talking to like talking to Jean Luc Picard, and it's like ah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. So I think watching Star Trek has reignited my love for international relations because it's like I are, but make it space. I are, but make so. it space. Okay, okay. Sorry, got distracted. Where was I? Uh, we're, okay. Sorry, we're new converts <laughs> oh, oh. to, to <laughs> We're not Trekkies. Okay. okay, okay. So three factors for liberalism was institutional peace theory, commercial peace theory, and democratic peace theory. But besides talking about liberalism alone, there's also a sub-factor or a sub-subcategory 
sub-theory under this, which is neoliberalism. Maybe a type of liberalism. I, I wouldn't say it is, because other people treat it like a separate theory altogether as well. Right. So I, I would just say it's like an offspring of, of liberalism. Yeah. Neoliberal. Yeah, do you even know what neoliberal is? Because up until now, I don't personally. I really don't. <laughs> I really don't know. If you disagree with it, it is neoliberal. Yeah. So, so what I got was neoliberalism refers to a school of thought which believes that states are, or at least should be, concerned first and foremost with absolute gains rather than relative gains to other states. So basically, neoliberalism is a revised version of liberalism. It looks at game theory, actually, which I think you'll be interested in. So instead of trying to have an advantage over the other, you, you you look at basically all the options and neoliberalism believes that we should attempt to look at mutual what, gains. Yeah, mutual gains. What will get us like the 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 best outcome from for all states. It doesn't assure that it's equal. Like the gains don't have to be equal. If you've done like a payoff table, you can Notice. Please do not get me started on payoff tables. That's my entire thesis. Yeah, so like a payoff table in in game theory is basically looking at the options of one party, looking at the options of the other party. And obviously, there's like a trade-off. If this person chooses A, like there's a disadvantage to the other party, etc. Yeah. Basically, so, you're you're looking at okay. So you have two actors. Let's call them actor A, actor B, and both actors can choose to. Cooperate or not cooperate. So, cooperate, not cooperate. Those are both parties' two possible moves. Mm. So, there are four possible outcomes. The first outcome is the situation in which both cooperate. Mm-hmm. The second one is the option in which neither cooperate. And the second and third one are when one party cooperates and the other doesn't. Yeah. So, under a realist view, you would say that because everyone is so self-interested, you're going to have a, a situation in which neither cooperate. Or one does and the other doesn't. Or one does and the other doesn't. Because usually what happens is, if one cooperates, for example, one decides to follow international law and then the other doesn't, the state that doesn't follow international law gets more gains. Yep. Like they're gonna win the war more easily. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is that neither state would find it in their own individual best self-interest to cooperate with international law, which leads to a collective action problem. This is a prisoner's dilemma, basically, in which neither um, cooperate and leads to the most amount of war. Yep. So neoliberalism believes that we should approach diplomacy with a game theory mindset, basically try to achieve the most gains for everyone. And I think that it, it's a more pragmatic way of looking at liberalism and tries to attach it more to economics. At least that's my understanding of it. Again, neoliberalism is such a confusing term. I have encountered it so many times in my life as a poli-sci student and up until now, the definitions seem to change all the time and people use it differently. I read articles that use it wrongly. So I don't know. I don't know what neoliberalism is because journalists don't seem to know what it is either. <laughs> but that's, that, that, that's just me. So basically, neoliberalism neoliber- uh, was a response to neorealism which if you remember is also about like putting economic factors and other modern aspects of realism into like like this this context now so they look at what is that their the perception of people that work for them yes yes or like the the perception of their citizens, etc. So it's basically like a splitting image. You just try to mo- modernize, basically. It's an attempt to modernize. So this is also therefore a response to neoclassical realism, which is more or less the same thing. Again, very complicated things. Yeah, I had to check my notes. <laughs> yeah, we had to print notes for me and Kyle because this is not one of those episodes that we can just wing. So it looks at how people can achieve benefits mutually. So it's through building norms, it's through building cooperation, building trust, having transparency and as little information asymmetry as possible. Very impossible though, in my opinion, but it's still something worth striving for and something I think that has played out for some countries. I'd, I'd say like smaller regional bodies do this better than like, like the bigger international one. So UN doesn't do this well. But I would say ASEAN does it better because a few actors, less like things in the payoff table in my opinion. 
Yeah, but I suppose that's more of commercial piece rather than mm, yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Because Again, like, they have like as members of the ASEAN have just such wildly different conceptions on things like human rights, those kinds of things. Um, but I also look at like like the EU as a as a customs union mm. where they share some values. That they use to inform their collective policies. Well, but look, that it's falling apart now. But before it, it worked. But basically, like I, I'd say, liberalism is the more optimistic view of looking at the international stage and trying to adopt it is never a bad thing. Trying to strive for liberalism is never a bad thing, right? So that that that's how I'll end the liberalism thing. But when it fails, Paul Simon just go like, oh, "I told you so." Yeah. I'm a realist. Yeah, I think I think I haven't really met anyone who wasn't a realist. A lot of my professors are, a lot of UP professors are at least, which I think is why a lot of UP students by default are very like, cynical. Cynical, <laughs> or so cynical. Yeah. Okay. So how do you use this in a debate? How do you use liberalism? I'd say you use it to de- defend diplomacy and benevolence. You use it to show how states can no longer act alone. Again, this is tied to liberal interdependence. You can say that states can no longer afford to like antagonize each other because there's going to be consequences and there are already structures in place to maintain the peace. And thirdly, you can say that this is proof that conflict is less likely. It's not to say that conflict will never happen, but realistically, because of liberalism, our first instinct isn't to go to war like before. It's now to go through negotiations. It's now to maybe sanction for a bit. It's to try to achieve peace talks, etc. Yeah, that was the example that you used in the last episode when we talked about China being more unwilling to go to war with the Philippines, mm-hmm. even though they have a stronger military force yeah. uh, relative to ours. Yeah, but there's also criticisms for liberalism. I- I've sprinkled a lot already while I was talking about it. Basically, it assumes trust exists, and we can't assure that. There's always information asymmetry. Even if you look at the coronavirus, there is information asymmetry. Even if people were benevolent, they just have personal reasons for not wanting people to know everything there is to know about their country. Wars still happen, especially in the Middle East. And it assumes that there is a way to gain like absolute gains, which I think is very difficult. Like You study game theory and you can probably agree with me that it, it's not easy to always like achieve a mutual benefit. Well, if we're talking about the prisoner's dilemma, there is a simple, there's a simple solution to the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, but which is that the prisoners have to talk. Yeah, if but they do communicate. S- but do states talk? That's the problem. They do, but they they put on an act. Yeah, but I also think that it is possible for you to have absolute gains. Like from my time studying international economics, hmm. we found that well, some sectors, some industries in. Um, the domestic sphere might suffer as a result of international trade. There is still a net gain that states can get from trade. Yeah, that, that's fair. I like. I I would say it assumes that it's possible, but I would prove it. Except yeah. I would need a graph, <laughs> and we don't. We can't do that. It's a podcast. All right. So that's liberalism. The last theory I'm going to introduce you to is constructivism. It's basically. Like it's it's the simplest one of all, but it's also the most complicated because it can encompass anything. Right? Constructivism is the claim that significant aspects of international relations are historically and socially constructed. So they're saying that it's not an inevitable consequence of human nature, or it's not essential to people, because liberalism believes that people have the capacity for good, and realism believes that people inherently are born to want power and born in a system of anarchy. But constructivism believes that you're both wrong. Everything is just constructed. Everything is what it's you want. It's a social wanted. construct. Yeah, everything is a social construct. Everything is just what you want it to be. So constructivism, I wouldn't say someone did create it, but it was first introduced by Nicholas Onuf. Like, he coined the term or used it and explained it, basically summing up a lot of theories that philosophers have been like, like positing for a long time. And I, I like this quote from Alexander Wendt. Um, basically, it says, Anarchy is what states make of it. 
Wow. Wow. So it's basically the idea that anarchy is not inherent. It is there because we believe that there is an urgency. We believe that other people are evil. We believe that we're always at the brink of war. Okay, so both. Okay, so earlier we said that there's a spectrum. On one hand, you have realism. On the other hand, you have liberalism. Is it accurate to say that constructivism tries to escape the spectrum and say they're not even in the middle? You're saying that this stru- this spectrum is a lie. You just invented it. Yep, that's basically it. So it 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 seems simple, but it becomes complicated because it means there's so many things that 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 can be structured. Then, like if if everything is a structure, what's real and what isn't? What will the international community look like? It basically throws out the possibility of making predictions. It throws out the possibility of making long term. Assessments, of course, though it doesn't mean you can't use it. It's it's now becoming popular because it relies on like trends. It relies on history. It relies on what what we see in the past. So it does have a foundation. It has a basis. But again, it's how it's interpreted. So it also says here that basically, like the constructivism is not just looking at like what things are. But how things are seen to be, and I think that's also a good way to look at it. So it follows two basic assumptions: that the structure of human associations are determined primarily by shared ideas rather than material forces, and that the entities and interests of of actors are constructed by these shared ideas rather than given by nature. So they don't believe that there's anything controlling people. They so there's nothing that, inherent in anything. There's nothing inherent in anything. So, constructivists view international relations as a matter of interpretation rather than explanation. And for example, constructivists note that an increase in the size of U.S. military is likely to be viewed with much greater concern in Cuba, a traditional antagonist of the United States, than in Canada, a close U.S. ally. Again, this is outdated a little. I, I know Cuba and U.S. are not as like their their tension isn't as great as it was before. It's still pretty great. It's still pretty great, but given the leadership shift in Cuba, it's it's now a different dynamic. But this was a quote from one of Alexander Wendt's like analysis, or at least someone who was interpreting Alexander Wendt. I think Alexander Wendt's pretty old. I wasn't actually able to get the exact like source of this um, quote. I just saw it in an article. It was quoted. It wasn't cited, and I thought it was a good example anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> so my interpretation here is that it also departs from. Liberalism and realism, in the sense that both of those um, schools of thought consider the state or state actors to be of high, like influ- like they're like the main subjects mm. of international relations. But here, constructivism explains um, behaviors um, as a result of explains behaviors in such a way that they're basically results of. Like cultural influences. Yep. So in that sense, perhaps it's not about the states, but it is also about the people who compose that state. Like, who are the people who create those cultural norms or similarities or viewpoints that lead states to act in particular ways? Yeah. So this is uh, basically breaking down international actors and looking at the core, which is at the core of anything is a misunderstanding. At the core of anything is an interpretation, and that's what constructive constructivists aim to achieve. So, I'd say that this is merely a stepping stone because there are, are different subtenets, uh, subtenets to constructivism. Again, I won't delve into those because even I have a difficulty understanding them and I still am going to study them <laughs> in the next few weeks. So maybe I'll come back to you in another episode dedicated to constructivism. But basically, how do you use this in a debate? I would use constructivism in three ways. First, I would use it to disprove assumptions and introduce new trends. So usually, for example, if there's a preconceived notion about how the U.S. is, I'll be like, that, that, that's not true. You just interpret U.S. to be a bastion of peace and a bastion of democracy. But if you actually look at history and reanalyze the trends that the U.S. has, has done, you can see them as a bad actor, right? So I would say that basically we have to reassess history and I'll basically reframe Right, it's basically a way to reframe the past to make the present towards your advantage. And we did this in that debate about China 
you're like, everyone thinks China's evil, but look at the trends, look at history. China is not that bad of a guy. Again, I'm using my mocking voice because I don't believe in that view, and that was wow. just like debater, <laughs> debater Nina and Kyle. Nina. <laughs> yeah, who had to defend China. But also, this also means that if you're ever against Nina in an IR round, yeah. and she goes, oh, realism! Realism! Go, okay. But constructivism. <laughs> yeah, so that's one way to defeat Mock Nina. Mock yeah, that's Nina. one way to defeat a realist. Second is you use um, constructivism to discuss short-term versus long-term analysis in favor of the long-term. So you say, sure, this is how it is now, but it can be reinterpreted in a different way in the future, the same way historical revisionism takes place. And that happens because of constructivist constructivist natures and constructivist actors. Yeah, the third way. I was gonna say that. So are you just are you just justifying historical revisionism? And then I realized that historical revisionism is not a bad thing. It's not necessarily bad. It's like if it's regressive or progressive, it, it depends on the way that you implement historical revisionism. I actually have a lot of feelings about that. Like the term historical revisionism has become such a bad buzzword. But in reality it just means like changing how history was viewed. So for example, Looking at the oppression of the blacks is a form of historical revisionism because history books in the U.S. didn't talk about it as much. So again, you know, again, historical revisionism is also a social construct because right history now... History is socially constructed. Yeah, because right now we view historical revisionism as a bad thing because how it's being used is bad. But in reality, it's a neutral term. Yeah, that's kind of messed up where, you know, like history is socially constructed so you try to revise it and people hate on you for trying to revise it but then you realize historical revisionism is also a social construct yeah yes yeah. yeah, so there are layers and layers of social constructs you could write a paper out of this yeah if you're in high school you know like, I want I'm smart <laughs> I know what a social construct is yeah the, the last way I'd use constructivism is by burden pushing like instead of looking at states I will force the debate to break down into the actors. So let's not look at the states. Let's look at the people that control the states. Let's look at their mindset. Let's look at how they interpret the situation and how they're likely to react. For example, the Philippines should probably not be happy about how China is invading our space. But if you look at how it's interpreted by our our government based on our administration, they see it in a different way. So that looks at how, like, our preconceived notions of how international like negotiations are dealt with like breaks apart and gets scrambled when you deconstruct it and look at it in a constructive sense so that's basically it I would introduce more theories like Marxism feminism green theory foundationalism positivism behavioralism colonialism post-colonialism structuralism great but more episodes we don't have time for that if you are interested maybe let us know or just message me about it I don't think I have the energy to do and something I, like this again. <laughs> also, to be fair, I feel like those the those those theories and intersect or overlap with a lot of other themes. Yeah. We can also talk about in other episodes. So, Siguro, in another episode, we're gonna talk about an IR extension to our particular yeah. um, theme, and then yeah. we're gonna introduce things like green theory, for example, in the environment. Yeah. So the the three I introduced, which are realism, liberalism, and constructivism, they're primarily IR centric. The other themes are just sort of things that you can use in IR but are not IR-centric. So Marxism is more econ than it is IR. So, But it is used still in IR. So I won't touch on those. If you want to research research on it, I encourage you, I encourage you to do. Or if you ha- have a theory that caught your eye while I was talking, I suggest you research on that because you'll end up in a rabbit hole of looking at theories after theories and then... You just might fall in love with IR the same way I did. Or it's not just me that I just like pressing links. I also like pressing links. Yeah, but we're, we're not really the standard for matter loading, are we? <laughs> so that's it for this episode. Thank you for letting me rant about IR. Yeah, I appreciated that. Thank you. Like, I, I saw some parallels with the way that I study, for example, law. Because I took up legal theory and one of the things that I learned there was that there are three main ways that you can theorize about how laws came to be there are there is one that says oh it came from the will of humanity like human nature human will there's one that says it came from reason like let's reason out what a law should look like 
And the last one is that it doesn't matter. It's not will. It's not mm. reason. It's mm. actually just tradition. Mm. And for me, that sort of parallels realism, liberalism, and constructivism. Actually, Especially in so far as liberalism yeah. was created partially by Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant was basically saying that there are universal categorical imperatives that we can intuit using reason. Yeah. Actually, that's... IR also has those, but we don't call it theories. You call them approaches to right. international relations. <laughs> but that's like another like Pandora's box you do not want to open because I'll be ranting for another hour about the three approaches. And we have been here for an hour. Yeah. If you're still here, why? <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it was insightful in any way. Uh, of course, I don't. I don't claim to be an expert on this. So if I did say some wrong things, I hope you forgive me and point it out. Like nicely, because if you say it harshly, I will cry. <laughs> but no, no joke though. I will cry if you criticize this episode. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not that. I'm not that. Uh, I'm just about now. Okay, I've been talking nonstop for an hour. I I, I had a fun time not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you said I, a lot. You I had a, a fun lot. time just going like, what, what did you say? <laughs> 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 okay, that's it for this episode. Okay, bye.